Before we get into the show, a quick reminder to check out and subscribe to the Beer Edge podcast with Andy Crouch. Each week, he's doing deep dives into breweries, talking with journalists covering the beer space, and unpacking a lot of what makes the beer industry so interesting. Find the Beer Edge podcast wherever you download shows. Welcome to Drink Beer, Think Beer, the podcast that gets to the bottom of every pint. I'm John Hall. Phil Wymore is here this week. He's the co-founder of Perennial Artisan Ales, and he's also the founder of Passenger Foods. And we're talking about entrepreneurship, imperial stouts, condiments, and legacy. But first, a reminder to check out BeerEdge.com, to subscribe to the newsletter, to check out the Defend Pilsner merchandise, and to listen to the podcast hosted by Andy Crouch. This episode is also brought to you by NZ Hops. In a little country far down in the Pacific, you'll find a cooperative of master growers whose legend and cultivars have been crafted for over 150 years with creativity and passion to produce some of the world's finest hops. Years of partnership with a dedicated hop breeding program and farming knowledge hand down through the generations sees the current day master growers proudly providing 18 unique New Zealand hop varieties to the world. Visit nzhops.co.nz or find them on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at nzhopsltd to learn more. And we're also brought to you by Brees, the leading supplier of specialty malt to craft brewers. They offer the broadest product line in the industry, including a wide range of roasted malts that add flavor, color, and character to beer. Their experienced operators handcraft every batch of roasted malt to ensure the product you get is consistent. Check out brewingwithbrees.com for beer recipes using roasted malt. So, Back in my traveling days, I was always happy to run into Phil Wymore. I've always found the co-founder of Perennial Artisan Ales to be affable, interesting, and tuned into flavor. And since Perennial was founded, it's grown in size and prestige, turning out a variety of beers, notably Imperial Stouts. But also, there's some crisp pilsners on offer. And seeing their familiar tree leaf logo is a sign that a good pint is not too far away. For Wymore, the desire to own a business and to create and sell something that housed his creativity has been with him since a very young age, and you're going to hear about that in a moment. Having a business means moving forward and trying to make a good life, but also trying to scratch the itch of innovation and appeasing that inner voice that is always pushing for more. So while many folks sat around binging Netflix during the pandemic, Wymore went back to his roots in the kitchen. He started messing around, and he recently launched a new business called Passenger Foods. And when he promoted it on his Facebook page a few weeks ago, I plunked down a few bucks, I got two jars, and I gave it a go. And I have been mildly obsessed with these chili crisps and have already placed a second order. A benefit of having a show like this is able being able to call people and to ask them about their passions and their processes. Last week, while scooping crisp onto my eggs, I knew I needed to call Phil. So here he is from Missouri. And I started off by asking him about his first steps to owning his own business. Here's our conversation. Do you remember your earliest instance, or at least an early instance, of when you wanted to create something? And then share it with other people. Mm, that's that's a good question. I I would say that was probably something that came a little bit later. You know, as far as wanting to do something for myself, I, I feel like I was 
entrepreneurial at a, at a very early age. Um, I got my first job, uh, actual paying job uh, when I was nine years old working for a newspaper. And then I did a lot of, you know, farm work and things like that. And then there kind of came a point, I'd say when I hit, you know, middle school where I, you know, really wanted to just, you know, either buy and sell things or, you know, find some other kind of way to, to, to make money that was not just, you know, putting in hours for somebody else and collecting a paycheck. Um, when I was in college, I, you know, before I got my first brewing job, which was working for a brew pub called Grindstone in Columbia, Missouri, I, um, you know, was a line cook at a, a couple restaurants. I was a sushi chef for a few years. And I think that's, you know, when I, that was re really when I first, I was always kind of cooking a little bit as a kid. Um, but that's when I really started taking interest in techniques of cooking and using all kinds of different ingredients. And then that was about the time, uh, well, you know, I started home brewing pretty much around the same time that I got my first brew pub job. And then, you know, I'd say all of that started to kind of converge into this um, idea of like, hey, I, I, I want to start a company. I do want to make something and I, I want to make something and sell something to people that, that came from me, not just, uh, you know, buy something and sell it to somebody else. Do, I, I, I often really wonder about the entrepreneurial spirit because it, it exists in people in different ways and manifests in different ways. It, was, there, was there something that sort of triggered it? for you to get to say, okay, you know, I'm not going to just work for somebody else. I'm going to, I'm going to do this myself. Was, was, was there a touch point that you remember, or was it more of a slow burn? I would say it, it wasn't an event. It was, it was probably more of a slow burn, something that was, I think always there. Um, like I said, I was, you know, probably in junior high school or so um, or middle school when when I first started sort of, you know, thinking about it, you know, I would, uh, yeah. I would, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of funny, but I would join, you know, like, uh, CD clubs, and, you know, and I would like buy and sell CDs or I would, uh, you know, Wait, just you mean like the Columbia records thing in the back yeah, of the newspaper yeah, exactly. where you'd stuck the, you had the stamps. Yeah, exactly. You know, stuff, stuff like that. Um, I would, uh, you know, hook up two VCRs and dub movies and sell, sell movies to people. You know, it, it was really like early days of, you know, I guess piracy. audio and video piracy. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is something I share. You're the reason you're the reason there's an FBI warning on these things. <laughs> well, what's funny about all that is that I, I really shed that also at a very young age. You know, that was a very like adolescent <laughs> sort of yeah, thing. You're but very was, quick to point out that the statute of limitations has very, has very long ago expired on this. Yeah. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> I can't wait to get the call from the perennial lawyers before this goes up being like, Hey, you know, maybe we'd like to redact the first <laughs> of this podcast. <laughs> You understand this was satire, right? Yeah. Um, all right. But so, so you were doing stuff like that though, but, and that what's interesting though, is that that's somebody else's art and somebody else's product. And so at some point you were like, okay, rather than you know, dubbing tapes or whatever, you wanted to make something that had your stamp on it and, you know, get it out there. Absolutely. Yeah. I would have no interest in, uh, 
buying something of somebody else's and, and selling it for a profit uh, now or any time in the last probably 15 years. <clears throat> or wait, what's the statute of limitations? Yeah, <laughs> whatever the statute is. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to conference in your your whole legal team in just a moment and uh, get those billable hours up. This is this is going to be fun. This is now uh, this is now a true crime podcast. <laughs> Um, but when you were, so, so you went from doing that, but then you're in restaurants and you're working as a line cook, you're working as a sous chef. A lot of times, you know, people then go into the restaurant industry. You went into beer, you started working, you know, you were at Grindstone, you said, but then you, know, you worked for some, some pretty well-known breweries that are still out there these days. Mm-hmm. Um, what was it like making the jump from the kitchen to to a barrel seller or just to a you know a brewery seller? Uh, you know, it was it wasn't as targeted and intentional as I think it is for a lot of other people that I talked to that you know got into this industry and I asked them how they got into it and that sort of thing. Um, brewing was not uh, something that I you know was necessarily an early passion of mine or anything like that. I I, um, I literally started home brewing when I got my first brew pub job. And that, that was, you know, really, was, you know, I guess to answer the question better, I, I probably would have gone into the restaurant industry. Um, there's something I really liked about the camaraderie of working with other people on the kitchen line and, you know, sort of like in the Anthony Bourdain uh, kitchen confidential sense of, you know, being like a, a band of pirates that, that can, cuss and burn themselves and work with knives and and do all these crazy things and you you go through this thing together where you're uh, you know dealing with the dinner rush and it's uh it's a difficult thing to do in hot conditions and all of that so you feel like a certain type of accomplishment that's different than other jobs that you work when you go through that with with this group of people um i like that that really appealed to me um the brewing thing kind of fell into my lap, honestly. So when I was working as a sushi chef, there was a guy who got hired on to be the head chef of the startup brew pub, Grindstone. And he would come sit at the sushi counter and, you know, we became friends. And he was telling me, hey, I've got this, I've got this gig at this brew pub coming up. And I had never been to a brew pub at this time. I was you know, 20 years old. And he was like, you know, I, I would love for you to come, come work for me. And, uh, you know, so I was like, well, you know, I, I make sushi. I, I really enjoy this. I don't really want to, you know, flip burgers and all of this stuff. I kind of saw it as a step down in my culinary career, but uh, he said, trust me, just, just come check it out. And so I, I went to check it out and, you know, these guys spent a lot of money. It was a beautiful location. I met the brewer. I'd never met a brewer before. And he was, uh, you know, this, this guy had a biochemistry background. I was studying a lot of sciences at the time. And I just started asking this guy all kinds of questions about beer because I had no idea. I wasn't aware of home brewing at this time either. So I had no idea how beer was made. And I was immediately fascinated by the processes. I always thought of beer as something that was just made in a big factory, like a Wonder Bread factory or something. And at that time, and uh, so it was really cool to just get this perspective from this guy. And 
I honestly think I got the job because I annoyed the crap out of him. And he said it would be easier to show you than to explain everything to you. And, uh, and voila, I ended up being his assistant. And after that point, there was no turning back. I was like, oh, I don't have to deal with a dinner rush. I can just make things on my own schedule. And, uh, you know, and then people have this sort of different reverence for, for beer than, you know, the, uh, the chicken wings that you'd put in the window or whatever. And, uh, and that was also an allure, uh, to me too. Um, you know, the social aspects of beer and the creative processes behind it. And then I really started homebrewing immediately. I got everything that I could together and I just really wanted to try making all kinds of different styles of beer, try different ingredients. And, you know, it, it really just opened up something for me. Do you still keep in touch with that brewer? I, I would like to, but it's, he's kind of tough to get a hold of. Yeah. Okay. He, uh, he also, um, he also has a, you know, five acres and keeps bees and he does all manner of different crazy things. Um, lives out on this farm, uh, you know, some, somewhere outside of Columbia. Um, really interesting guy, but yeah, I think he was soured by his whole experience. The brew pub that we worked for was only open for, maybe like six or eight months. And then uh, it was a bad business partnership and they ended up closing down. What was cool though, is we made really great beer. I benefited greatly because I learned so much and I took that experience. And like you were mentioning some of the other breweries that I, that I had the you know uh, pleasure of working for, I, yeah. I, I took those skills. I moved to Chicago and you know got a job at Goose Island uh, pretty much right away. And then after Goose, you were at Half Acre. Correct. Yeah. And then at Brewer for their first year. Yeah. And then obviously back down to Missouri and and, and opening up Perennial. Mm-hmm. Um, six months in a place, though. I mean, there's something that's pretty exciting about being part of a venture at its very beginning. Yeah. And, you know, and then same thing with Half Acre as well. I mean, Goose was pretty well established by the time you got there. And, you know, I'm sure growing in its own ways, but is there a thrill of, and this sort of, you know, will lead us into, to, to, to this new project that you have, but is, is there a thrill being at the very beginning of something and then being there, you know, when you're essentially you know, hitting the bow of the ship with a, with a champagne bottle? Yeah, there's, I, I would say that the beginning might be the most thrilling part. Um, I mean, just to back up a little bit, when I sure. worked at this brew pub, um, things were starting to get kind of weird at the place in terms of like the business model, the, the the brewer as a business partner, and then the real estate slash restaurant tour owner uh, partner, they, they were really at odds with the vision of the brew pub. And I ended up actually, this is kind of the entrepreneurial thing, but um, he approached, he knew I used to be a sushi chef and he approached me about starting a sushi delivery business out the back of this uh, brew pub, which I jumped on that opportunity wholeheartedly. I I wrote up, you know, the, you know, all the plans for it. I sourced everything. I dove into a ton of books and, uh, you know, working for a sushi restaurant and starting one, or a whole different thing. And 
Columbia didn't have any sushi delivery and sushi delivery sound at the time probably didn't sound like a good idea, but uh, I was like, we're going to figure this out. You know, we're going to put everything on ice. We're going to, I mean, run everything into a, you know, a radius that's just a, you know, a few miles, whatever. And um, it was, it was awesome. And that might've been my first real sort of, you know, dry run at starting a business was just doing it for this other guy because I had no risk in it, but I got to go through all of the motions of doing uh, doing a business startup with, without having to raise any money. And did it actually launch? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, we ran it for a few months until the whole place closed down, which effectively killed the sushi delivery business as well. Yeah. as the <laughs> But when you're thinking about, so when you finally had the chance to go and open up your own place with perennial, there are so many lessons, I guess, that you must've learned along the way from, you know, all of the various jobs that you had, but also being there at the beginning of things. And are there, are there, when you look back on it now, are there things that you might have done had you not had the experience that warned you not to? Like lessons that I've learned that I, things that I would do differently in hindsight. No, not necessarily differently in hindsight, but like, you know, the brewing community talks about so much, you know, there, there, there's a lot of people who can give you advice on how to open up and how to get to, you know, where you want to be. But until you've actually done it, you know, you're not going to learn, you know, what you don't know until it's too late kind of thing or until yeah. you're in the thick of it kind of thing. Yeah. So were, were you getting advice or were there things that, you know, maybe you think you would have done differently had you not seen both the launch of a successful business, which with you know, half acre, I guess that it's fair to, to say that that's been a successful business. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then with grindstone where six months in, you know, probably not super successful. Were, was there something that, I don't know, you think like your instinct would have led you down a path to, had you not had those experiences? I know that's sort of a, a pretzel logic question. Yeah, I, I, I guess I'll kind of explain it <laughs> in my own way, but yeah, uh, yeah, I, I, f- I feel like you know. So I spent half of my three years at Goose Island writing a business plan for uh, for Perennial, essentially, and um, you know, having to knowing that I was going to move to St. Louis and do this thing remotely was you know a challenge. So it was very much a a uh, and sort of like this abstract you know, process, abstract problem to solve sort of thing. What was great about working at Half Acre when I moved over there was that I went from a brewery that was producing nearly 100,000 barrels of beer a year down to a startup, a relatively fresh startup that was on pace to do, you know, a few thousand barrels. And that was, you know, a vision that made a lot of sense. I was all of a sudden able to really pare the plan down and bootstrap and figure out how to do this with a lot less money because I'm, I'm thinking of all the things that I don't need anymore. Like, wow, these guys don't need a, a complicated bottling line. They don't need, you know, an expensive keg cleaner. They don't need all of these other yeah. things. And there's the, there was, I saw in uh, Gabriel and, and Matt, you know, the, the founder operators of half acre Mm -hmm. um that entrepreneurial spirit in in action and being able to see that was the best example i could i could have on one side of the business which is you know 
starting and operating a brewery, but that's also just a slice of starting a business. You know, there's, there's a whole other, you know, world of, Oh, I have to have insurance. I have to, uh, either buy a building or have a lease and there's, you know, negotiations in that there's, you know, there, there's a lot of other, uh, tangential business functions that I had no idea, um, what I was doing. So in that sense, I was pretty fortunate to, um, you know, to have the partners that I did too. Um, you know, Emily and, uh, and, and Russ Bryant, uh, those guys, we all, we all sort of brought these different skills to the table. Um, and the idea was, you know, I would focus mostly on, you know, the brewery itself, the build out of the brewery and, you know, how it functions, how it flows, uh, you know, product development and those, those sorts of things and not so much the business function, but now what I'm finding, you know, I'm, I know I'm getting off track and I don't even know if I answered the question, That's that you, all right. but, uh, you know, as the brewery's 10 years in and it's matured, um, you know, I've had to mature as well as, as, as a, as a business owner. Um, I'm, I'm so much more focused on, um, you know, business function, finance, cash flow, uh, you know, revenue plan, um, you know, just trying to mentor and manage, uh, you know, employees and, and, you know, try to bring our company into compliance more and more by the day uh, or by the year, at least, um, you know, try to fill in the blanks of things that we were too busy for when we were first starting out. I want to get into that, but I want to back up just a little bit because you said something interesting to me of being at Goose and getting there and starting the business plan for Perennial. Mm-hmm. So when, I mean, there's a lot of folks who would go to, to Goose Island, 100, you know, 100,000 plus barrels and, you know, doing, you know, huge big things um, and say, okay, this is, this, this is pretty cool. It sounds like you saw it as, you know, a pretty good stepping stone almost from day one. Be, you, being a half acre or being a goose? Uh, being a goose. I thought you said when you were at goose, you started the, the yeah. business plan for what would eventually become perennial. Right. Right. And, you know, so I was at Goose Island at a really interesting time too. So this was the, you know, pre um, acquisition uh, Mm -hmm. by AB. And so, um, you know, we, I was there at a kind of a transitional time. Um, You know, so many great brewers had been through the system. You know, Matt Reynoldson was one of of the originals there. Uh, There's, there's just been, more than I could even try oh, yeah. to name, but no, I mean, this is a good opportunity to remind people that they should go read Josh Noel's book, um, uh, <laughs> Bourbon County Stout and Selling Out, because uh, it really does tell such cool stories of you and and all the other brewers who have been through there, in addition to the sale and everything else. Absolutely, and uh, you know, I was there at uh, a time that you know Goose Island really started getting into innovation in in beer style, and so you know, Bourbon County Stout was something that they had, had been doing for, you know, probably 10 years before I had gotten there, but, um, you know, getting into, uh, mixed fermentation, uh, you know, barrel aging sour beers and that sort of thing was, uh, was something that started while we were there. Uh, when I say we, you know, myself and, you know, Matt Lincoln from Fremont, for instance, and, you know, a handful of other people as well that, uh, you know, we've learned, um, we, we got to learn and experiment in this place and with somebody else's budget and, and do something that we didn't really have 
any mentorship uh, or, or any examples to follow other than the Belgian beers that we were popping open at the time, you know, the imports. And, uh, you know, Greg Hall was a big part of that. And he, he basically let us sort of run free and just come up with ideas and, and they green lighted most of those ideas, which is really cool. <clears throat> and I think that spirit, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that spirit of innovation was kind of what was a light bulb for me. I, I was like, Hey, you know, it'd be really cool. It'd be just to start a brewery that does all the specialty stuff that mm -hmm. we're working on and not worry about the, um, you know, the flagship brands that you need to maintain shelf space and tap handles at the bars and all these other things, just focus on these cool, uh, projects that, that were, uh, that we're able to do. And that was really the genesis of that, that, that was where the light bulb went on for me that, you know, I want to start a brewery that just does that. Now, of course we don't just do that at perennial now, but that was the spirit in which we had started. Yeah. And is there something, something to be said about, I don't know, size and, you know, like the intimacy that comes with fewer barrels I mean, I know soul gets talked a lot about, or at least, you know, years ago was being talked about. And, you know, after uh, Goose Island was sold, it's, oh, it's going to lose its soul or, you know, and maybe it has, maybe it hasn't. Um, but is there something that is a little bit more controllable when you are smaller as far as executing a vision, executing flavors that you want or recipes that you truly care about as opposed to just... I don't know, feeding the metrics beast? I think so. <clears throat> I think that you're often trying to figure out how to make a project fit a certain, uh, you know, a certain revenue plan or you're, you're you know, at, at this larger scale, um, you know, you're often trying to uh, fill out something. Oh, well, we should launch this one beer idea, but we can't do one. We need to do three and make a series out of it. And then we, you know, here's the marketing plan or the, the branding for the series, you know, so it starts to get driven by bigger things. I think when you're, mm -hmm. when you're a bigger company and then, you know, when you're, when you're smaller, I think sometimes you can just treat every beer as its own project. It, it may see the light of day. It may go down the drain, but here's what I want to do purely driven by the beer itself and not by other, uh, you know, aspects that might try to pull it through or force us to create, you know, clones of it that are slightly different or, or whatever. Are you still happy with all the beers that you're making? Like, are, do they, do they sort of still speak to you as a beer drinker or. You know, it's, it's kind of funny, but I'm, I'm one of those people that, I'm not a purist. I've never been one. I, I appreciate old styles of beer. They're, I mean, you know, historical styles of beer. Um, and, you know, especially ones that are quaffable and, and uh, you know, highly drinkable and lower in ABV. Um, but also like this sort of, you know, seeing the, uh, you know, the development evolution of IPA, hazy IPA, and, um, you know, pastry stouts and things like that, that we certainly dabble in. Uh, I'm a pretty big fan of those beers. And it's, 
I guess it both surprises me and doesn't surprise me because I, I kind of know myself and I, I, I like to be on trend when it comes to things. I like tasting anything new that people are putting out there. And, uh, you know, I'm not into all of it, but I, you know, if, if it, you know, if I can see what the goal was and it's highly flavorful, it's usually pretty interesting to me. Um, and, you know, so, so that being said, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of, you know, the fruit that we're putting in things. I'm, I'm a big fan of our, you know, hazy IPAs and the crazier the stout is, um, the, the more interested I am in the drinking it too. It's, it's, you know, there's uh and can, then can you go into that a little bit more though, of like, like what's constituting, you know, craziness and stout these days in your mind? I think, you know, people are pretty, um, you know, pretty obsessed with the viscosity, you know, it's one of the worst things your stout can be if, if it's an imperial stout or pastry stout is, is thin, right? Um, if you're a barrel aged version of it, the, the worst thing you can uh, be accused of is not having barrel character. Um, you know, people really want a lot of flavor. Um, and I think that, you know, there's challenges, uh, you know, we've always been sort of driven by this, idea of, you know, wanting to be, this is the purest thing coming back a little bit, you know, having integrity and saying, okay, well, if we're going to put, uh, you know, rice crispy treats in there, we didn't do that, but you know, we're going to put yeah, real, you haven't done that yet. Gonna get rice crispy treat extract, which I don't think that's a real thing, but you know, what I'm saying just that's marshmallow and vanilla, right? Yeah. Yeah. You exactly. So I imagine know, that's got to exist. I had a beer that was cotton candy extract recently. Oh, that so. sounds not good, but I, I no, no, it, does, it was not, it was not, it. no, we, we, yeah, it, my soul died a little that day. Um, but I imagine that there's going to be marshmallow vanilla extract that's out there. Yeah. And, 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 you know, not to, uh, I, I, I don't ever want to insult anybody that, that goes that route. I, you know, I, I think a lot of people do, and, and I respect that they're trying to create something flavorful that, you know, that satisfies their audience. Uh, but for us, our approach is, okay, we, we're going to do tiramisu. How do we deconstruct the ingredients of this and highlight this and rebuild it in a natural way and then figure out how much quantity of this we've got to use to get the impact that we want. And a lot of times we come up short, you know, and then, you know, the first batch that we make, it's like, ah, oh, man, we, we need more cocoa nibs and they're expensive, but I, who cares? And then the second batch, <laughs> the cost of the beer goes up, but you, uh, you know, you try to inch it and nudge it ever further and closer to this, um, thing that you'll probably never achieve, you know, but cause some people enjoy it and some people, no matter how much you cram into it, they're, they're always going to complain that there's not enough there, but we do try to do that as naturally as possible. I'm going to have more with yeah. Phil in just a moment, but first a word from the folks who help keep the mics hot over here including NZ Hops, a cooperative of master growers whose legend and cultivars have been crafted for over 150 years to produce some of the world's finest hops. NZ Hops are like no others, unique in their flavors and aromas. Visit nzhops.co.nz to explore more. And Brees is proud to control their malt starting in the field until it arrives at your brewery. They have long-term relationships with several hundred growers in the Bighorn Basin of Wyoming and Montana, where warm days, cool nights, and floodwater irrigation yield some of the highest quality barley in the U.S. 
And now back to Phil Wymore of Passenger Foods and Perennial Artisan Ales. When I was thinking about uh, speaking with you today, I was thinking about some of the very early uh, beers that I had from you all, which were your big imperial stouts that I think have become, you know, part of the general consciousness for you know, even even you know, the younger drinkers today who are sort of chasing uh, you know, the, the the rarest of the uh, of the barrel aged stouts and stuff. But it's uh, like Abraxas comes to mind and Seventeen comes to mind as mm-hmm. you know two beers that I I, I don't know were they. Were they early adopters as well of the trend that we're in right now? Do you think were you were you ahead of the curve? I mean, I think that the the spirit of it was was ahead of the curve a bit. Um, Seventeen was a beer that I was essentially working on while I was at Goose Island. I had I had a you know an emptied out Bourbon County Stout barrel that I refilled with their uh, oatmeal stout. So I went, it was going lower ABV and uh, I was steeping it with, uh, you know, with dried peppermint leaves and um, I didn't quite get it where I wanted to, but that was an idea that just always stuck in the back of my mind as something that, you know, I'll come back to this. And, uh, you know, and so, you know, of course, 17 is a imperial stout, so it's, you know, much beefier and yeah. you know, much, much more body and, you know, pretty high dosing rates. Uh, but it's still, you know, there's no peppermint oil or anything. It's still dried peppermint going into something like that. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's, yeah. And, and then Abraxas, you know, I mean, not to say it's like a copycat type of beer, but I mean, there's, you know, at the time there were a handful of other people doing sort of this Mexican chocolate profile and, and there's even more of them now. And I think that's great. It's, you know, it's hard to be original. You just want to, you know, throw your hat in the ring sometimes and say, well, try ours, you know, when you, it just sort of, it, 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 it when you say copycat, like I, I, I know what you're saying and you eventually sort of put your own twists on it, but you were at other places and then you started your own and then you obviously put the stamp on yourself and you mentioned camaraderie early on and sort of building up a good, <sighs> Like you know, just a good company culture, or at least working towards one. And people have come and worked for you, and then they've left and they've started their own brewery, and then they've, you know, obviously taken what they've learned and they're they're putting their own twists on it. Um, how do you, how do you reconcile that in your mind? Was it you know, okay, I did this in the past, like I expect people to do this going forward. Do you have conversations with folks now of like? You know, because you are now like a link in somebody else's chain. Much like I, I think about that Josh book quite a bit about you know all of these you know all of these breweries that Goose Island essentially helps you know spawn off. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think about that and how you want to you know be a part of somebody else's story um, or legacy or you know your own legacy when people come and work for you and then go someplace else and take what they learned, but put their own spin on it. And it becomes, you know, eventually theirs. Yeah. I, I, I think I used the basketball coaching analogy when I was talking with Josh, uh, when he was writing, getting, you know, material together for his book, you know, mm-hmm. it's Goose Island is <clears throat> sort of like Bobby Knight, you know, and, um, you know, the, you have the Mike, uh, 
Shashevskys and the, you know, the other uh, types of coaches that, that go on to uh, have winning programs that, that learn from, from the master. And, you know, working at Goose Island was uh, felt that way. And I, I think that um, I, I'm not really sure why that place versus others, but, um, but there must've been something of an entrepreneurial spirit that rubs off on people that, that work there. I, there's so many, I, I made a list one time. I think there was, I'd identified something like 13 people that started breweries or at least were hired on to be the head brewer of startup breweries that came out of that place. And this yeah. was around the time Josh was writing the book. I'm sure there's more of them now. Um, and yeah, I, I do feel like I'm part of, part of the chain um, and, you know, paying that forward in some way. I, I, I find it an honor that, you know, people have come and learned at our shop and have also had the entrepreneurial spirit to do something. And, and uh, you know, I, I've never uh, <clears throat> maintained any sort of ill will there. I, I think that there's always a mutual respect as long as it's done in a respectful way. You know, if you're trying to, if you're really trying to copycat the place that you came from uh, and, and you, and you do it on, on poor terms or have poor form about it. Well, sure. There, there can be some negative feelings there, but that's not been my experience. And yeah. so I really respect, um, you know, Corey King, for instance, uh, you know, Jonathan Moxie, who's gone over to Rockwell. Um, I, I think it's really awesome that the people are lending their, their voice to the community of brewers and in, in the same community, even, you know, it's not a, there's enough to go around and, you know, there's not a lot of loyalty in the craft beer consumer anyways. I think if, if there's a handful of people in, in a radius making good stuff, I think people should go give business to all those handfuls of people, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I get it. And, and that's sort of, I think it should at least help keep quality up. Cause that's one of the, that, that's still one of the big mm-hmm. elephants in the room. I think of, you know, just because somebody can open up a brewery doesn't necessarily mean that they should. And, you know, if you're not trying to make you know, the best possible beer, pos- you know, that, that you can, you know, somebody else is going to come in and, and, and eat your lunch um, eventually. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, in the early part of this, we were talking about, you know, you were excited about diving in uh, when you were uh, launching your your to go sushi business, and um, you know your early days of putting a business plan together, and you know the beers that you wanted to make a perennial uh, when 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 you first started, and then you started talking about how you know these days you're doing uh, you know finance and uh, you're working on you know managing um, and mentoring, and you're doing sort of all of the uh, the, the the nuts and bolts. Uh, type stuff when it comes to the, to, to the, to the brewery. I imagine that's got to be fun and rewarding in its own way. And it's also got to be <laughs> frustrating and uh, soul crushing in other ways. Did, did what you're doing with perennial right now help lead to launch passenger foods? Yeah, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I wouldn't call, uh, call the, you know, anything soul crushing, but okay. there is, you know, and I'm terrible with math. So if somebody said to me, here's a spreadsheet and you need to make That's this fair. work, like I, I, I would die a little inside. That's fair. I, you know, I, I think as I've matured and our business has matured, um, I've come to appreciate aspects that I wasn't 
as heavy handed in, in the early days when I was so focused on production and product development and mentoring brewers and, and that sort of thing. Um, you know, there's, I've come to appreciate a business as a business and, you know, it's, it's now on, I, I feel like very responsible for trying to, you know, bring perennial into a, a, a stronger position every year as, as we go along as a business. And that motivates me a lot. Uh, but that being said, it doesn't scratch the itch of, you know, developing something and uh, it doesn't scratch the itch of, well, I've got this other idea and I would love to, you know, manifest it in some way if, if I could. And, uh, and that's where passenger really came in for me. You know, it's, there's, you know, blessing and blessings and curses of, you know, pandemic life uh, for businesses and for individuals, um, you know, in those businesses. And, um, you know, one of the blessings was having more time at home, uh, you know, with my family, more time at home here at Perennial and not traveling all the time, going to beer festivals and, yeah. you know, doing, um, you know, sales calls and different markets far away and things like that, which all do disconnect you, you know, somewhat from, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a homebody at heart, um, you know, I, but I like to stay very active. And so, you know, I, I cook, you know, for, for my family uh, almost every day. My, mm -hmm. my passion for food has never, uh, has never gone away. Um, the idea of getting into sort of like a food product versus beer was a little bit daunting, but the idea of it was exciting as well. And so, you know, I found myself having, you know, at home, having a little bit more time, you know, uh, being in the kitchen every day again and, um, you know, running, running, uh, you know, business parts of perennial and then, then just having some time to, to think about some other things too. And so, um, you know, I started trying out um, other uh, types of products in this category, uh, which has kind of taken off lately. You know, I, uh, I'm, I'm just well, going to let, let's, let's back up just, just a little bit. Okay, because, yeah. Like what is the category? Well, broadly it's condiments, right? Okay. Uh, and, you know, I've sort of been obsessed with, uh, you know, spicy things, hot sauces, trying to make hot sauces and things like that. Uh, more, more specifically, I'd say the category is, um, <laughs> I, I mean, I guess I would call the category chili crisp at this point, um, okay. or some sort of like, uh, you know, Asian spicy condiment, but it's, a, it's different. It's, 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 um, yeah, cause it's not, a, it's not a hot sauce and right. it's not necessarily a dip, although I've, I've used it as such, um, mm -hmm. since it in the house and standing there with just potato chips, just taking big, big, you know, scoopfuls. Um, uh, but it, and it's, it's kind of like a spread, but it's not really a spread. Like it's, it is sort of one of these fun, not definable or not easily definable things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And first off, thank you for, for buying some. I, oh, I was, uh, yeah. thought that was really cool. And uh, I was also really honored that you, that you liked it so much, <laughs> but uh, yeah. I don't think my endorsement goes as far as you think it does, but that's, that's very nice of you. And, and it's, and it's delicious. And I, you know, I'm reordering more cause like it's, it's, it's really good. We've had people over uh, a few times. I was growing pizza in the backyard uh, two weeks ago and I had it out and uh, one of our neighbors just went nuts for it and uh, says she was going to order, but I don't know if she did yet. So I'll have to get on her. But I think it's one of these things that once you have it, 
you 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 get into it. Um, mm-hmm. But and I want to keep going on this thread. But when I've talked to brewers and brewery owners in the past who have started new ventures or side businesses or whatever, it 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 has by and large been in the beverage space. You know, it's been coffee or kombucha or you know seltzers, you know, or or just but different companies, not necessarily just a line extension. Right. Um, and I know that you're a guy who appreciates good cocktails, um, I, you know, and, 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 and whiskey and, and, and things like that. So I, was there a time that you thought, okay, maybe I'll do a business in a space I'm already familiar in, or was going into a food product part of the excitement, part of the challenge? I thought about other, uh, beverage categories. Um, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm really into cocktails and I love whiskey. Um, I've always been scared of making whiskey because I'm just afraid that, you know, I don't know enough about it to make it as good as the ones that I like. And I know that there's a spectrum of whiskey out there, just like there's a spectrum of beer in terms of quality. And if you're not, you know, on the right end of that spectrum, um, what's the point for me? And so, you know, I, <clears throat> I didn't want to be disappointed at uh, making a, a whiskey that wasn't great. So I just kind of crossed that one off in my mind really early on. I was like, I'm just going to keep enjoying other people that make it, make really good whiskey, bourbon, you know, rye, whatever. Um, the cocktail thing, I definitely thought about that a little bit. And the seltzer thing, uh, was was something I thought about a little bit, but honestly, as I was, I was scared of seltzer when I first saw it hit, because I remember trying it and I was like, "Oh, this this has a lot of flavor. It's low calorie. It's you know, it checks a lot of boxes." And I was like, "This is potentially going to hurt beer." And I think a lot of brewers thought that, and some hedged their bets and got into it and that sort of thing too. Um, I, I had kind of had this epiphany one day I drank like two or three seltzers. It was a hot day. Uh, and I had the worst sort of acid reflux and I was like, man, and I'm looking and there's citric acid and all the you know, carbonic acid carbonation and everything. And that was, yeah. and I, and I was, it kind of made me happy. I was like, okay, good. You know, beer is gentler on the system. I'm pretty sure than, uh, than I don't have any scientific evidence, just my own, <laughs> you know, physiological reaction, but, but, uh, you know, it, it made me feel a little bit better about beer and it also was a turnoff. I was like, you know what? I don't want to make this stuff. You know, somebody else can make that stuff. That's fine. But, uh, <clears throat> anyway, nothing else in the beverage category appealed to me enough <clears throat> as something that I should get into personally. And, uh, you know, so I, I started thinking about the food thing and it wasn't one of those things where I was like, I've got to figure out a food business to get into. It, it was really driven by the, the sort of experience of how I experienced chili crisp. And so, um, and if I can wax on that for a minute, yeah, please. So, you know, my first experience with it was probably just a few years ago, maybe like three or four years ago. Um, you know, and the, and the most known version of that is uh, Lao Gun Ma, uh, which has been around for maybe 25 years or so, um, you know, Chinese chili crisp. And uh, someone had introduced it to me and said, this stuff is so great. And, you know, just put a scoop of it on your rice and, you know, just mix it in. And, uh, you know, it's crunchy. It had this really addictive sort of characteristic because it was not real spicy, but just enough to where it kind of, 
if you like spice, it makes you want more. And just so much umami and and I like chili oil and I've been making my own chili oil for a while anyways, just because I cook so much at home and mm-hmm. found recipes that call for <clears throat> making your own chili oil. And so I was always doing that. And um, this is just kind of taking chili oil a step further. You know, can we mix some crunchy things into it and make it, you know, give it texture and, and, you know, add some other things that make it more flavorful, uh, make it a little salty, make it a little sweet, make it, uh, make it hang on your palate longer and enhance, uh, foods. And, uh, you know, so that was kind of always in the back of my mind a little bit as something. And I was making fermented hot sauces and all of this stuff. And I was like, well, those things are really hard to scale. Um, there's a lot of work for a little, a little, uh, quantity at the other end of it. And so that was a cross off in my mind as well. But anyway, um, I started seeing these chili crisps kind of popping up, you know, uh, Momofuku and, uh, you know, a handful of other companies. And, um, so I started ordering all of them, you know, just, I wanted to try them. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, as I was doing that, you know, there was, a couple that I liked and what I found was there was a lot of them I didn't like, there was, I had a lot of critique about some of them. Well, if I did it, I'd do it this way. And when you start saying, well, if I did it, I'd do it this way, you know, it just kind of goes further. I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to try to try to make some. And then, uh, you know, probably the first five or six batches that I made, I, I was like, man, I've got a lot of work to do. And I kept having all these little epiphanies along the way. And uh, I would say this was, you know, a two month process or something. And then, then I was like, now I've got something that's really good. And I started, I took it around to a handful of people um, that I know that use this type of product. And uh, it's like, what do you think of mine? And, you know, and I got really good feedback. And so then I was like, okay, um, how do I differentiate? <clears throat> you know, so what I wanted to do is I, I wanted to come out with different, these different heat levels. And, uh, you know, now that I've sort of, in my mind, have nailed like this, you know, the texture and, you know, the, the balance of, of the stuff. And, uh, but then I'm like, okay, now I guess I'm just starting another company. Um, it wasn't really <laughs> the intention, but it's like, it's just kind of like you start recognizing your own behavior and you're like, Oh, I think I'm starting a company. <laughs> so I guess I better start thinking of it that way instead of I'm just, you know, tooling around in the kitchen as a hobbyist, you know? But I mean, at some point, yeah, if you're bringing it around to show people, or to, to get taste and feedback. I mean, that's not like, unlike a home brewer who eventually wants to go pro of, you know, Hey, what do you think of this? And, Oh, this is really good. You should open up your own brewery. Um, I mean, you, you have the practical experience. Um, can, can, cause again, I love these sort of intangibles sometimes. Was there something where you said, okay, I think I'm starting a new business that, or was it again, just the culmination of everything? Uh, I, I would, could, could this have stayed a hobby? That's a good question. I, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> um, I, I think I wanted to scratch that itch and, and just sort of yeah. like, you know, I, I was kind of thinking of like, uh, you know, Clint Eastwood and Unforgiven. And he just kind of like gets up on the horse again and, uh, goes, goes to do one more job. You know, I, I I'm never going to see you any other way from now on. <laughs> Well, there, there is this other itch that I, that this whole process sort of uh, revealed to me. And it was that, you know, 
if I zoom forward and I look back on my life and my legacy, do I only want to be known as a beer guy? And the answer to that question pretty quickly was no. You know, I, I, I want to, I want to try something else. And I don't know that this is my last act either. You know, I, I just, um, it's just the current one or the next one. And, uh, you know, and I think that's what the spirit of entrepreneurialism is. You know, I, there was a time when I thought of myself as only just, I'm going to start a brewery and I'm just the beer guy, you know, but I don't know. I, I think that, you know, and at the end of the day, it, it, I've been having such a blast just doing this thing, just starting something from an idea and taking it to a tangible prod, product that, you know, people are buying and enjoying and they're sending me pictures and how they're using it and they're posting that stuff on socials. And uh, I was like, this is pretty darn cool. You know, I haven't felt this way in a while. And yeah, uh, yeah that's, that's what it is. You know, I just I really enjoy doing something new. You mentioned the word legacy. And for a while, there were conversations happening, I mean, in every corner of, you know, are you ever going to sell? Are you going to get merged with? Are you going to get bought at like, you know, whatever, because then it happened for a bunch of high profile places and then some other unexpected places along the way. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, you know, became the question of independence and the question of craft and, you know, all, all of these other sort of, you know, weird things. But I think what was lost in that was the vision that founders had you know, brewery founders had, small business founders had of, you know, what is going to be my legacy? Am I even going to have one? Mm -hmm. um, as you're this many years in now, you know, with, with, with the brewery, are you thinking long-term? Are you thinking about things beyond you? You know, th does that thought even interest you at this point? I, um, you know, one thing that we're getting around to as our business matures is, you know, we've, Emily and I have always talked about wanting, you know, to offer some employee ownership, you know, and figuring out how to do that as a small company. Um, and now we have sort of an idea and a mechanism of how we're doing that. You know, we're, we're going to, you know, buy out, essentially buy out an original investor and then, you know, make that available to, to our employees. And, I think there's a part of me that's now shifting and thinking that, you know, maybe in the long term, you know, we, we sort of shepherd this thing in a way that, you know, our, our employees can, uh, you know, have more ownership in it. And, uh, you know, and, and maybe someday, uh, you know, they're, they're more, you know, they're involved in business function a little bit more than, than they are now instead of just the individual jobs that, that they have or whatever. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of, you know, yeah. just, just spitballing here, but because I, I'm, I don't have a clear vision of, of how that's going to go, but it's, it's sort of an idea that I have in my mind. Um, but that's, I mean, but that's sort of business mechanics though. Like I, I, I guess, you know, after goose was sold, there was, you know, some pushback, you know, at the, at the owners there and some hurt and some sort of distrust and, 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 and things like that. And, mm -hmm. you know, where there was it's among some of the employees and again, going back to Josh's book and reading these firsthand accounts, you know, that people were sharing. Um, do, do you think about it in those terms of when you walk out the door for the final time, how you want to be known? 
I mean, I would certainly want it to be positive. <laughs> I, haven't really, I haven't thought about it very much because uh, I think it's it's so far away and it is hard for me to project too much, uh, yeah. you know, on, on what the future uh, holds for things like that. But I, I do want to do things in a way that, uh, that everybody respects. Uh, that, that's important to me, um, you know, in terms of legacy. Um, you know, I, I want people to say, you know, it was really great working for him, for them. Um, you know, I, I learned so much when I was there or they've given me so much opportunity, those kinds of things are really important to me as an employer and as, uh, <clears throat> you know, a mentor. You, you mentioned in the seltzer part of this conversation, you know, that you thought it could, could really, uh, hit beer hard. Um, and we've seen the numbers sort of play that out, that, it, that it has, mm-hmm. um, you know, that, 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 that beer has lost, uh, lost its, it, it, uh, a, a bunch of shares, um, in the last couple of years. Um, What's the hardest thing thing for you as a brewery owner these days? What's the biggest challenge? You know, I, I mean, I think, <laughs> I think, uh, you know, is, is, you know, like, I guess if you're in TV, you say it's eyeballs, you know, I, you know, I just keeping people in our tap room as much as possible. And a, a B just, just so we're clear, it, the, the eyeball equivalent is Anheuser-Busch uses share of throat. Oh God! What <laughs> isn't that? Isn't that just ghoulish? <laughs> it's disgusting. Yeah, it really, it really is. Yeah, I was at a, I was at a meeting at AB, you know, years ago doing an interview, and and somebody, you know, mentioned the share of throat, and I was just, I was so gobsmacked by it that I was like, that's awful, and you guys should feel ashamed for that. It's jarring. And then I also like walked outside, like after. <laughs> afterwards from their Manhattan headquarters being like, well, this is a multi-billion dollar industry and I'm a journalist who knows nothing about finance. So yeah. Yeah. Good on you guys. But yeah. What a jarring term. Share of throat. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Uh, Well, (laughs) now that I've totally trained a little little more sugar coated than that. Uh It's, It's something, you know, that highlights experience and, you know, these kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, we have done some. Uh, yeah, I, I would say you know this this very idea has driven us. So uh, let's you know talk about the pandemic for. Uh, I'm going to be brief and all this. I know we're coming up on an hour here, but um, you know we went through our business went through a lot of the same iterations that I think so many of us did as we went and tried to navigate all the different changes and 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 all of this. And so you know in March 2020, you know midway through we. Uh, you know, did the little panic post and rightfully so at the time and said, you know, we're, we're, we're closing down our retail. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a couple of weeks later, it's like, you know, we opened up for curbside to go only. And, you know, we did that thing for a little bit. And then we said, okay, now we're going to just be outdoors only. And that phase lasted way longer for us than we could have anticipated and longer than it did for a lot of people. It was about 15 months. And the reason why it was so long is because partway through that, you know, as we're starting to get a scope of our financial situation in the wake of this pandemic, you know, we said, hey, I think, well, we need to reopen indoors, but if we're going to do it, you know, we, we need to freshen up the place. I mean, this this looks like a college dorm now that we've been uh, had people outside for oh, so yeah. long. You know? And so, um, so we 
poured some money into renovating and we you know, modernized our look and uh, expanded our seating. And we also did a lot of uh, outdoor improvements as well. We uh, you know, put in some AstroTurf for some outdoor games and built some pavilions and pergolas and redid our patio. And so, you know, and all of this drug out as it always does longer than you anticipate. And so, you know, we're poor, you know, our poor customers are outside in the heat you know, as uh, this thing just went deep in summer. So we reopened uh, indoors, uh, you know, I'd say about six weeks ago. And that's okay. been really great just having everybody back in. And, uh, but you know, that's, I'd, I'd say that's the tough part is putting out the fires and trying to adapt to the situations all the time, but it's all, but that's business. That's what you sign up for when you go into business, you know, like all the motivational things like, wanting to get up on the horse and, and, and go out for another adventure and those kinds of things. Uh, you know, that feeling uh, is why I do it, but you know, the reality set in pretty quickly um, here even with passenger. I said, you know, this yeah, is like, I can ask, yeah. this is like a little baby that, that l- loves me and is affectionate. And uh, it's not the teenager that you know, can't stand my dad jokes and is you know, leaving <laughs> the house, you know, yet. And I want to stay in this phase for a little bit. And then, you know, here I am, uh, you know, six months in or whatever, and I'm already trying to figure out like, okay, well, I guess I need to get a co-packer and I need to uh, get distribution and all these other things. And, you know, now the fun's all going away. So, well, not really. I'm, it, it, you just, you just adapt, you know? Yeah. It's fun in a different way. Um, yeah. And yeah. until the next inspiration strikes. Yeah, that's what I'm really excited for, and I have no idea what it is. I've been asking folks uh, for the last couple of weeks on the show as we start to uh, wrap up here. Um, uh, my wife and I uh, rewatched The Good Place uh, just simply because we needed something that was uh, uh, had a little joy and hope in it because you know everything has seemed uh, you know pretty tough. And there's this whole thing where you can walk through a green door and be anywhere uh, at any point in time with whoever you want. Mm. And so, with that concept in mind. I'm curious if you could walk through a door right now and be at any bar having any beer with anybody that you wanted, what would those three people or what, who would the people, who would the person be, where would you be? And what would you want in your glass? Wow. Oh my goodness. It doesn't have to be historical. Like, you know, some people are like, Oh, Abraham Lincoln or, you know, like, you know, (laughs) (laughs) at the Ford's theater bar, like, you know, like, which, you know, it's just kind of, you know, that's mean, um, (laughs) in the AB boardroom, getting my share of throat. Um, (laughs) that's hilarious. Um, you know, one of my favorite beer bars, uh, I've ever been to is uh, is the hop leaf in Chicago. And so I would say it would have to be that bar. Um, who it would be with? That's really tough. I, I I really enjoy going to grab a beer with just about anybody. Um, maybe not the the you know the AB uh, <laughs> head of sales or whatever. Right. The eye, ear, nose, and throat uh, division. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> They're a bad medical practice. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I, I yeah, I think it would be. Uh, it would have to be the hop leaf. Um, and who knows, maybe the proprietor there, Michael Roper, I think it would be cool to just grab his ear again and say, Hey, you know how, you know, this guy opened up, uh, one of the first Belgian import type of places in, in the U S um, and, you know, he did it 
20 plus years ago. And, uh, yeah. I, I, I would love to, you know, just interview him kind of like you're interviewing me and just, just, uh, you know, just grab his ear. Well, I hope that gets to happen sooner rather than later. Yeah. Well, he reopened. So I, yeah, I, I know, I back I know. To Chicago, you know, well, congratulations on passenger. And, uh, I'm glad you guys are refurbished and revamped, uh, at, at perennial after, um, after the pandemic or, you know, whenever it ends, but, uh, it sounds like you guys are on the, on, on the right path. And, um, thanks for sitting down on the show and, and, and taking the time this week. I appreciate it. Awesome. John, thanks for reaching out. I had a really good time and, uh, appreciate it. And, uh, be safe out there. Less than a minute after that Zoom with Phil ended, I realized that I had missed probably asking him the most important question, which would have been, when will you do a collaboration between Passenger and Perennial? A chilly, crisp pale ale, perhaps? Anyway, I'll try to have him back down the line. Who do you want to hear from on this show? Who in and around the beer space would be great to talk with? Let me know. You can reach out on social media. Beer Edge is on all of them at The Beer Edge. And you can always reach out to me directly on email. It's John Hall, J-O-H-N-H-O-L-L at BeerEdge.com or on Twitter at John underscore Hall. And if you love smoked beers, and of course you do, a reminder to check out the This Week in Rauk Beer group on Facebook, or you can go along with us on Twitter and Instagram at TWRaukBeer. And if you're interested in advertising, please reach out to Liz Melby. She's at Liz at BeerEdge.com, and she'll let you know all the information that you need to know, including our surprisingly affordable rates. And speaking of that, this episode was made possible by the support of Brees, which has been malting barley for 145 years, and the fifth generation of family ownership is currently leading the company. But the values have always remained the same, producing the highest quality, most consistent malt, and working directly with their customers to help them succeed. From Pilsners to Porters and everything in between, Brees offers the finest handcrafted malts, extracts, and adjuncts to help you brew the perfect beer. And we're also brought to you by NZ Hops. In a little country far down in the Pacific, you'll find a cooperative of master growers whose legend and cultivars have been crafted for over 150 years with creativity and passion to produce some of the world's finest hops. Years of partnership with dedicated hop breeding programs and farming knowledge handed down through generations sees the current day master growers proudly providing 18 unique New Zealand hop varieties to the world. Visit nzhops.co.nz or find them on Instagram, Facebook, or LinkedIn at nzhopsltd to learn more. One final reminder to go to beeredge.com to see all that we have going on and also to check out the Beer Edge podcast. Steal This Beer has new episodes every Monday and the BYO Nano podcast drops on the 15th of every month. And as for this show, Nate Schweber, he does the music and Jeff Quinn designed our logo. I'm John Hall. New episodes of this program release every Wednesday. And that's when I'm going to be back again to drink beer and to think beer. <laughs>